The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, this week, uh, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi kicked off his uh, annual visit to Africa. So it's tradition since 1991 that the Chinese foreign minister always begins the first overseas trip of the year in Africa. I'm not quite sure how that became a a, a custom, but it is something of a custom, and now it's really turned into a big deal. Everybody wants to know where the foreign minister is going to go, and this year he's starting out his trip in Egypt, in Cairo, which is quite fitting given the fact that there are a number of events in the Middle East and the Persian Gulf that are calling his attention. So he will he will be meeting, well, by the time this show airs, he will have met with Egyptian Foreign Minister Sameh Shukri, where no doubt they are talking about Libya and the situation in Iran. Both of those are situations that Egypt itself is closely monitoring and very much a part of as the home of the Arab street. And so China's role now in that part of the world is becoming increasingly prominent. And today we're going to be talking about is China's role in the Persian Gulf, the GCC countries, Mideast, and North Africa changing given the very, very tumultuous times that we're in? Yes, this is very interesting, particularly in, in you know, because usually the Wang Yi's trip is very careful to try and balance the different regions in Africa. So, you know, there would usually be uh, a North Africa, a West Africa, an East Africa, Southern Africa, Central Africa country. Um, this time is actually quite Northeast. Um, you know, except for Egypt, he's also going to Djibouti and to Eritrea. Um, so it's in that region, uh, you know, uh, quite close to the Middle East, um, raising questions about whether there are strategic reasons for him to, to have made this choice this time. And, you know, whether it reflects a a kind of stronger Chinese uh, focus on the region. And that region right now of focus is Iran. So on January 3rd, many of you are aware that Iranian General Qassem Soleimani was killed or assassinated by the United States in a drone attack. And that's now created a sense, particularly among the commentariat in places like Washington, that China is actually going to be one of the big beneficiaries of the the uprising, the, the the kind of the chaos that's now starting to ensue, there was an article that crossed out of the Daily Beast by David Rothkopf, and if you follow foreign policy in the United States, you know who David is. He's the former former foreign policy editor. He's also at the Carnegie Endowment, and he wrote in the Daily Beast, "Trump's Iran cluster effery." I won't say it. We're a family show. Uh, just handed the Middle East to China. He said that it is China that is riding a wave of historical momentum that seems certain to make it the next major foreign actor in the Middle East. Also, Jonathan Fulton, who is an assistant professor of political science at Zayed University in Abu Dhabi, he wrote on Twitter, or no, he wrote in a paper for the Atlantic Council uh, that was then retweeted widely across the internet, China wants a predictable, stable region in which it can trade and invest. In killing Soleimani, Trump has made that more challenging. 
dot, 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 in the long term, it may increase China's power and influence in the Middle East. So let's get some perspective on this. And someone who follows this very, very closely and has been writing about it for quite some time is Camille Lons, who is a research associate at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Bahrain. And she joins us from Bahrain. A very good afternoon to you, Camille. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Hello, good afternoon. Thank you very much for uh, letting me speak to you. You co you were a project editor in on an October 2019 policy brief published by the European Council on Foreign Relations called China's Great Game in the Middle East uh, that was jointly written by Jonathan Fulton, who we mentioned from Zayed University, also Degang Sun and Nasser al-Tamimi. And so you have been thinking about China's role in the Middle East for quite some time. You have been tweeting about it, and I recommend everybody to follow you on Twitter. We'll give you the information on that later in the show. Um, when you are watching the events right now, and you're seeing what people like Professor Fulton are posting and writing about, what is your take on this moment that we're in right now vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese role, both in the Gulf and the Middle East? your point about the fact that in Washington uh, the, uh, the dominant idea at the moment is that uh, China is one of the big uh, beneficiaries of the crisis. I would be quite skeptical about this. Um, so we've seen that China's response to the crisis is very consistent with its uh, traditional attitude uh, in the region. It's been calling for restraint, for dialogue, etc. It has not made any substantial announcement. And this is showing a, a growing gap uh, between uh, the, the increasing footprint of China, the increasing interests, uh, uh, economic interests that China is having in the region. There is a growing gap between this and 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 the the refusal of China to uh, to be involved into uh, into the politics of the region. And so, with a crisis like this one, it makes very strikingly. Um, uh, evident that China is quite irrelevant and 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 powerless in terms of in terms of the politics, and I think that this is actually uh, quite detrimental uh, to China uh, to China's relationship with uh, with its Middle Eastern partners. So. Um, the, the, the optimal situation for China in the Middle East, I would say, is a, a situation that is relatively stable uh, because it would allow it to, to make business. It doesn't threaten uh, the maritime routes. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't make energy prices too volatile. And uh, I have to remind here that China's uh, economic interests uh, in the Middle East are mainly focusing on uh, energy and on the Belt and Road initiatives. And, and so China doesn't have really an interest in, uh, in a full-on war uh, in the region. But it, it is true that it has an interest in low-intensity tensions between the U.S. and Iran, for example, because it allows it to kind of capitalize on, uh, on these uh, competitions and rivalries uh, in the region. But it is definitely not in China's interest to have a real escalation uh, in the region uh, because and we see it uh, with with the recent uh, with the recent crisis that China has been absolutely absent from from what's been has happening. So, so I would disagree that that this is uh, this is in China's interest. China is pretty uh, prominent in North Africa, you know. So now now during Wang Yi's visit to Egypt, he pointed out that 
that there's about $7 billion of Chinese investment in Egypt alone, um, and that Chinese have registered more than 1,500 companies in Egypt. Um, so there's all of this economic engagement. China sells a lot of arms to Algeria. It, it is producing a lot of products in Morocco. Um, do you see a, a difference between China's approach to North Africa and its approach in the Middle East? I would say that North Africa remains uh, very low in terms of China's priorities. Uh, for the moment, in the in the region in general, uh, the Gulf is is the region that is the most interesting to China um, for uh, for energy purposes. Of course, uh, half of the like almost half of the oil imports are coming from from uh, the Gulf the, and Iraq, um, Saudi Arabia being one of the main. Uh, oil uh, providers, uh, Iraq is the second one, Iran is a potential big provider as well uh, if um, outside of sanctions. Uh, so, and, and all the maritime choke points around the around the Gulf as well uh, are quite important for uh, for China for the for the for the trade etc. So the the North Africa is of course it's a region that China is considering more and more, but I would say that in terms of priorities, uh, it's very uh, down below the list. What do you think the Chinese are thinking right now? And I know that's a, a, a very opaque question, but I'm, I'm a little bit confused here because I'm looking at Chinese official media, and it's very, very sympathetic to, to the Iranians. Uh, first of all, the Chinese loathe and detest unilateral military interventions in other people's countries. That is just, that makes their skin crawl because that's the kind of thing that they're terrified will happen in Tibet or in Xinjiang or in some other places. So that, that type of unilateral military action is offensive to the Chinese from the beginning. But Chinese ambassador to South Africa, Lin Songtian, who is emerging as one of China's most outspoken international spokespeople, not just an ambassador to South Africa, but increasingly someone who is commenting on all sorts of international geopolitical issues. He wrote, where's the justice, rule of law, and human rights over a CGTN video talking about whether or not uh, Iranian General Qasem Soleimani is actually a terrorist that was worthy of killing? And again, so we're getting this very sympathetic message from both Chinese officials and uh, Chinese official media. What do you think they're trying to convey and how do you think the Chinese are trying to play this in Iran to be sympathetic with the Iranians, which by definition seems like it would antagonize the Americans and cause yet more instability? But that instability, though, is what you said will actually hurt them in the long run because it really complicates the price of oil. Tell us a little bit about what you think the Chinese approach is in this region based on what you've seen as well. So, so I would say there are two different things. Uh, this narrative uh, condemning uh, the, the the attacks uh, falls in line with the, the very traditional Chinese line of non-interventionism, um, respect of the rule of law, respect of uh, Iraq's sovereignty, territorial integrity. Uh, so. 
this is this is China's uh, traditional narrative, uh, and this doesn't necessarily uh, have to do anything with Iran. It's just uh, the way uh, China has been uh, uh, positioning itself, and and of course uh, the, the the attacks by the U.S. reinforces this narrative power um, against the U.S. and and they've been calling the U.S. the troublemaker of the world. So this is more used as a way to attack the U.S. Uh, than to support. Iran or, or any country specifically. Um, then when it comes to Iran, um, they have been very careful to, um, to balance their relationships with the different countries in the region. So they have very good relationships with Saudi Arabia, with the UAE, uh, and very good relationships with Iran, uh, with Israel as well. Uh, they've been very careful uh, not to um, advantage any of these different parties more than the other. So they're uh, supporting uh, Iran uh, at the moment, but they do it very carefully uh, to make sure that they don't antagonize either with the other countries of the region, especially those who are at odds with, uh, with Iran. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. China has recently had two bouts of joint military exercises with Russia. One with uh, where trilateral exercises with South Africa, and then also trilateral exercises between China, Russia, and Iran. Um, you know, what, what do you think of this development, um, and and what is what do you think it indicates about China's you know, appetite for getting more involved in military issues in in the Gulf? It was interesting because it was the first trilateral uh, exercise of this sort. They already had some exercises with Iran uh, bilaterally. Um, so, so this is interesting, but at the moment we shouldn't, I think, inflate too much the meaning of these exercises because they have not sent any combat troops to, to the exercises. They, it was... Um, primarily uh, anti-piracy uh, missions. Um, and uh, this comes uh, only a few weeks after they had kind of similar exercises uh, uh, with, uh, with Saudi Arabia uh, around the port of Jeddah. So again, that reflects what I was saying about this balancing uh, attitude between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, and um, and yeah, and, and they've been uh, they've been insisting on the fact that these exercises with Iran shouldn't be taken politically. I, I think there is definitely a political angle to it and a political narrative, especially doing it with Russia. But at the same time, um, yes, they've been very careful about it, and it's mainly Iran and Iranian sources and Iranian uh, medias that have been insisting a lot on these exercises because for them it's. It's a way to show to the U.S. that they have some uh, alternative allies, but in reality, the relationship that they have with with China is very asymmetrical. Uh, they need China much, much more than China needs them. We've talked mostly about the Persian Gulf area, where China wants stability. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, we've talked a little bit about North Africa. You recently are talking about the Red Sea area, and there's some changes there. And even touching on China, talk to us a little bit about some of the 
the politics and the dynamics in the Red Sea area, that particularly as they pertain to China? So for for the Red Sea area and the, and the Horn of Africa, I mainly look at it through the Gulf perspective and the perspective of uh, Arab Gulf actors. Um, and over the past uh, 10 years, they've been uh, increasingly present in the region. I mean, they, they made a comeback that were already present uh, in the past, but they made a real comeback in the region. And part of this is also linked to uh, to China's Belt and Road Initiative. It's not the only element to it, but it's an important element in the sense that um, these Gulf countries are in a moment where they're trying to diversify their economies. Um, uh, Saudi Arabia has put forward this um, Vision 2030 to, to diversify its economy. And one of the elements that they have identified as a, a good way to do that is uh, to emerge as uh, trade uh, hubs and and to uh, invest a lot in uh, in close partners and especially in the Horn of Africa and um, and to and to try to find a a place on the Belt and Road uh, as much as possible. And um, they know that China is very present in the Horn of Africa, that it is very interested as well in, in the Red Sea. And so for the Gulf countries, uh, being present and being relevant actors uh, in this region is also a way to plug themselves on the, on the Belt and Road initiatives. And they, are, they have been trying to see how to cooperate with China in this region uh, um, for the moment, this is very much at the beginning, and there is very little signs of cooperation between China and the Gulf countries uh, and, and the Horn of Africa. Uh, uh, China tends to do its its projects uh, on itself, but um, but this is something that is going to be very interesting to to look at in the future. You mentioned that China is very involved in trade and you know, trade and investment economic activity in, you know, in the region and then is trying, generally trying to avoid getting too heavily involved in politics. That, of course, is it's, it's generally its approach in Africa as well. It tends to stay away from, from political issues as far as it can um, and from, you know, from commenting on internal factors and trying to really use economics uh, and economic engagement as, as the main vector for its engagement. Is that an approach that can also work in the Middle East? Um, is there a way for China to to have a strong relationship with the Middle East only on economic terms, or is it, will it be forced to becoming politically involved in the future? I mean, that is the big question that everybody is asking. Um, the thing is that even though China has been claiming that it was only interested in, in, in economics, uh, we have seen uh, over the past few years uh, an increase in political relations, cultural relations as well, and to a lesser extent, uh, security relations as well. Um, this is really at the beginning, uh, but the fact that China... It's not exactly in the Middle East, but the, this base in Djibouti is very close to the Gulf. Uh, the possibility of having also uh, some uh, military um, uh, capabilities in, in Gwadar, so on the other side of the, of the Arabian Peninsula in Pakistan. And um, 
and the fact that it's conducting also some uh, exercises with uh, with Middle Eastern countries, um, all this is showing that China is slowly uh, learning about the region and and, and starting uh, some at very low level some some cooperation with the, with the countries. Um, so definitely, what we see with the crisis, the recent crisis, is that China is not there yet, uh, for sure. And uh, and when uh, a crisis of this type happens, we see that China is very much willing not to get involved at all. Um, but yeah, there is there is a possibility that there. I mean, on the learning mode, and that uh, this could, uh, in the, in the long term, um, be something that they could uh, be able to to use later. Um, and the problem of the Middle East, and that's the big dilemma for China in in, in the years to come, is that it is going to be increasingly complicated for China not to take position uh, on politics at all. Um, and uh, it's a very divided region uh, and where uh, the countries are uh, feeling very insecure um, and and where especially, I'm, I'm, I'm talking here especially about the Arab Gulf countries, where uh, they're seeing uh, the U.S. less and less willing to... Um, to be their, the, the, the security provider in the region. And so there is a, a growing feeling of insecurity around this. Um, and they are trying to develop their own capabilities, but they have the feeling that they will have to rely on other countries as well. And so it is quite likely that in the coming, uh, in, in the years to come, China is going to be pushed uh, increasingly by these countries to play a, a greater role um, but um, so we have to see how how it will navigate this but I um, yeah I think that uh, on the long term uh, it will have at some point to get more involved in the politics as well. What I think is so fascinating about China's involvement in this part of the world is how up until now they have been able to navigate the pitfalls of the sectarian politics, both with uh, Sunni and Shia Islam, but also in the Arab-Israeli side as well. They are able to uh, do business with the Saudis and yet at the same time maintain really strong relationship with the uh, Iranians. At the same time, they are doing business with the Israelis and they are in Syria. I mean, it just, it really, it, it's I don't know if it's because those countries simply don't look at China the same way as they would the U.S. or another country. They just kind of say, China's here to do business, so we'll leave them out of the sectarian politics. But there's another aspect to this, that China itself right now has a large Muslim population that is interning. Uh, All of the best reporting in the West suggests that there's a mass internment program of at least a million people, Muslims, from, from Xinjiang, and yet they have escaped... Um, all of the criticism that would have befallen any, I mean, certainly if any other country did it in the West or others, they would be pillared by, by the Arab street. How is this possible that the Chinese have been able to navigate it so effectively and not have issues like the mass internment of Muslims become a potent, powerful, emotional issue on the Arab street? Yes, uh, exactly. I mean, China has been very good at 
creating this very transactional relationship with Middle Eastern countries where they say, we don't intervene, we're not like the West, we're not going to you know, give you lessons about human rights or, or governance uh, issues, we just want to do business with you. And, um, and this, at the beginning, is something that has been very well, I mean, it's still very welcomed by, uh, by a lot of these countries uh, because it contrasts a lot with, with the, the, the traditional Western uh, approach and um but uh, so so on the Uyghur issue, for example, uh, we have seen recently a, a few countries of the region starting to to say things. Uh, but uh, for sure, I think that uh, for now the the economic interests are much more important than uh, than uh, than this type of, of concerns. Uh, so um, China has been very good at selling a bit its own narratives uh, to uh, to to these countries and even. Getting Gaining on the on the international uh, scene, gaining the support uh, on a number of domestic or or regional issues. I mean, uh, for example, in the South China Sea, uh, they have uh, they they managed to have some agreements with some of these countries to get their support on what matters to China, or to get their silence on what uh, China doesn't want them to say. And in return, uh, China is uh, is being a, a partner, an economic partner, and China doesn't uh, criticize them on their own uh, domestic uh, issues as well. So, so China has been very skillful at this, um, and I don't see it changing in the near future. I don't. I don't think that, especially uh, in in uh, Gulf countries like in Saudi Arabia, I don't see uh, any. Uh, Open criticism on the Uyghurs arising anytime soon, um, but um, I think this is a dual. Uh, edge sword as well um, this this transactional relationship with these countries because it is uh, saying um, it is something that is very welcomed by especially some uh, some autocratic regime who like this this uh, non interventionist approach but at the same time there are, it means that Middle Eastern countries are very much aware as well that China is not really a reliable ally, uh, and and they say it co- consistently uh, in, in in meetings. They don't necessarily say it openly, but in private meetings, they consistently tell me uh, China is going to fail us. Uh, they have this this feeling that uh, China is there to do business, and uh, and whenever it doesn't have interests anymore, uh, it is uh, it is uh, not going to stay in the region, or it's not going to intervene in politics. Etc. So, so this can be, I think, also the, the, this attitude of non-interventionism can be quite detrimental to China on the long run, because we see that. Okay, lots of Middle Eastern countries have been trying to to get closer to China because they see a lot of opportunity. They see a way to also use China as a kind of bargaining chip um, uh, in in their relationship with the West. But at the same time, whenever they can, they still prefer to to have strong relationships with the West. They still prefer to even uh, sometimes deal with the West uh, on economic terms. We've seen that Iran, for example, when the JCPOA was signed. Uh, they abandoned some of the projects they had with with China to run to to Western uh, investors. So um, 
so for the moment, if, if China really wants on the long term to, to deepen uh, its relationship with these countries, it will have at some point to, um, to, to take sides and to be a bit less transactional in its relationship. Um, you know, China in this in this respect plays a similar role in Africa, where it it, it plays the role of the non-West. You know, the the kind of alternative to the West, frequently also usable as a as a kind of a bargaining chip between African countries and the West. Um, but you have also pointed out in you know in in your policy brief that the. The, the, there seem to be indications that um, that the, the role of the West in the Middle East is changing, um, and the, the the current crisis with with Iran does also seem to be pointing in that direction. Um, how do you see the role of the West in the Middle East changing over the next while, and how do you think China will adapt to that to those changes? Um, for the moment, the role of the West is mainly the role of the U.S. Uh, because they have been, uh, especially when I speak about the Middle East, I speak here mainly about the Gulf, uh, but this is true as well in, in, in the rest of the region. But uh, the U.S. has been the, the key security provider um, uh, of the region. And uh, this is not something recent, uh, but we've seen uh, over the... Um, the past few uh, mandates of, of pres presidential mandates, uh, a willingness of the U.S. to um, to withdraw from a region where they've been very present, they invested a lot of energy, of uh, of money, and uh, without real uh, without real results, uh, and 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 sometimes more problems than uh, than uh, they managed to resolve. So um, so there is a kind of fatigue uh, in the side of the U.S. and. Uh, and a willingness to withdraw from this region. And um, and so this is something that uh, Middle Eastern countries, and especially Arab Gulf countries, have been perceiving very acutely. And um, with the Trump administration, they hope that that Trump would would change this dynamic, and finally, uh, very quickly, um, they saw that it would be the case with Trump as well. Um, and uh, and and especially this summer, during the the, the series of attacks from uh, from uh, very high, likely uh, Iran to to some oil tankers, oil uh, facilities in Saudi Arabia, um, the reluctance of the U.S. to jump in and to and to really. Uh, uh, replied strongly to these attacks uh, has been quite um, uh, quite a big concern for Arab Gulf states uh, and uh, and a quite of a wake up call uh, on this front. Uh, so this has led them to to turn and to towards uh, alternative allies and try to 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 diversify their relationships. And uh, one big beneficiary of this has been China. Uh, they've been doing it as well with Russia um, and. Um, and so this is a trend that we have seen really increasing over the past 10 years, but has been really accelerating very recently. Um, but yeah, the, the big dilemma, the big issue for, for, for Middle Eastern countries at the moment is that they see the U.S. less reliable, uh, quite unpredictable, and uh, with with the the Trump administration, and and we've seen it the way also they have been replying to the the current crisis with Iran, 
that they've been very careful um, calling also for restraint and, and de-escalation because they know that they will be the first targeted uh, if there is a, a real escalation. Um, and, and that shows the lack of um, trust that they have towards the, the U.S. at the moment. Um, but at the same time, they don't really have anyone else to turn to because China has been totally absent. Uh, Russia has, I mean, Russia has quite limited power, although it is trying to project also an image of, uh, of a global power in the Middle East. And, and it, Russia has been quite uh, influential, especially in, in uh, Syria. But at the same time, Russia's capabilities are very limited. Uh, so so this is, a, this is a really an issue for the Middle Eastern powers at the moment. Um, at the same time, the U.S. is not really withdrawing totally either. Um, this has been a subject of, of uh, discussions a lot, but we see that the U.S. is still very present. Uh, they're not leaving anytime soon the region. So for now, the situation can can stay as is. But if the long run, the U.S. starts really seriously withdrawing, uh, this will change a lot the, the power dynamic in the region. And uh, this will be interesting to see at that time, whenever that happens, uh, what China what China's role is going to be. Camille Lons is a research associate at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Bahrain. She's also the project editor, or she was the project editor, on the October 2019 European Council on Foreign Relations Policy Brief, China's Great Game in the Middle East. That should be your starting point for understanding the very, very rapidly changing dynamics in the Middle East and China's role. And to, you know, to really... On Twitter, it's uh, at Camille Lons. It's just my name and my surname. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. One of my big takeaways from Camille's comments was right at the beginning uh, of our discussion where she said a lot of people are overstating China's importance in this region. And I think that is a habit that happens in a lot of Western capitals. Yeah, and I think that's what's going on a little bit in some of the media coverage that we're saying that we're seeing about how this crisis with Iran is really benefiting China, as if China isn't equal to the United States in the Persian Gulf, which Camille pointed out, it's not. It's not militarily, it's not politically, it's not historically. By any measure, China's not an equal here. And there is this overstating of Chinese power that often happens. And, and I think this is something that is born out of American ignorance and fear of China, which says, wow, they're the new Soviets, they're the new Cold War, they're the new rivals, so therefore they must be equal to us. And I think it's really, really important that we take to heart what Camille said, which is they are not in any capacity close to being comparable to what the United States is, for better or for worse. They're different. They're playing by a different set of rules. We've talked about that in Africa, and they're also playing by a different set of rules in the Persian Gulf as well. So I don't think it's uh, appropriate to follow what David Rothkopf was doing out of Washington by saying, America's losing, China's winning. 
Uh, I just don't see the one for one. I agree with Camille on that one. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, the U.S. presence in the Middle East is something unique, you know, um, and and can't easily be replaced by any other country. It's it's something that that is this kind of world historical unique situation, um, you know, and and it's a kind of a structural element that that a lot of of Middle East foreign policy has has kind of evolved around. Um, so it'll, you know, a change in American power will be its own massive story, and and it's and it's it's difficult to kind of to to put that story in the context of a kind of a Cold War bipolar narrative. You know, kind of it's not necessarily that that a decline in American power equals an increase in Chinese power, um, or or the other way around that an increase in Chinese power necessarily uh, implies a, a decline in American power. American power itself, you know, kind of has its own trajectory. That 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 will have to be worked out in some kind of ways, some kind of way. Um, and and you know, one of the countries that that will be adapting to those changes would be China. And the ultimate contradiction here is that while the United States uh, or while China really resents American power in many ways, especially here in Asia, uh, it, it's been a huge beneficiary of it. And so I don't. I think again, going back to Camille's point, I cannot imagine that anybody in the Chinese foreign ministry in Beijing or Xi Jinping himself would want an American withdrawal from the Persian Gulf in the Middle East because they benefit enormously from it. Let's not understate how important a country like Saudi Arabia is to China. It is, I think, the largest oil supplier to China until these these big Russian pipelines come in. A lot of, of Chinese oil is coming through the Gulf and, and the American warships that are there to protect that are incredibly important to them. I mean, that is, and that, that is the irony here. And it's the same here in Asia, Kobus. As you know from your expertise in Japan, the Americans keeping the South Koreans, keeping Taiwan, keeping uh, Japan kind of all from going nuclear, all from being hostile to one another, has been a tremendous benefit to the Chinese as they've been able to, to grow without having to dedicate four, five, six, seven, ten percent of their budget to military. So that's the, that's the weird part of all of this. And so you hear these kind of snide comments coming out of Ambassador Lin all the time about America being evil, with evil intentions, about you know questioning American motivations. Again, I'm not taking a side in this. I'm just suggesting that there's a lot more benefit to American power for the Chinese often than is alluded to in Chinese state media and from the likes of people like Ambassador Lin. You know, and taking an even further step back and, you know, looking at an even wider context, we, we're recording this as Australia is literally on fire, you know. Um, so we, you know, the everyone knows that, that the UN has said that we essentially have 10 years to, to implement radical uh, dec- decreases of, of carbon emissions in order to, to avoid catastrophic runaway climate change. I mean, it, Australia indicates that that might, you know, that, that 10 years might be shorter in reality. Um, but the, the, the bigger question is, you know, oil is central to not only the Middle East economy, but central to why China is in, interested in it and central to why the US is interested in it. So, you know, so, so any kind of massive changes in carbon use in the world will definitely change the, the political calculus that's happening in, you know, in that region 
fundamentally. So you know, so so I don't really have a you know I don't have any more of a of a of a kind of idea of what that was going to mean than anyone else. But but you know, kind of this is a decade in which in which we might well see if if we manage to, if the world manages to get its stuff together, we might well see a, a radical kind of redefinition of of the importance of the Middle East in the world. Um, and you know, and, and and that'll be fascinating to see what what that means and also how China figures in it. So we are expanding our focus and our coverage now at the China Africa Project to include much more discussion about the Red Sea, the GCC, North Africa, the Persian Gulf, uh, and and the Mideast in general. And because, as we've heard from this discussion today, the lines that divide those are are really blurring. Uh, Wang Yi, his his discussions today or this week in in, in Cairo highlight that that he is not talking only about Africa when he's meeting with the Egyptian foreign minister. He's also talking about broader issues throughout the Persian Gulf, GCC, and the Red Sea areas as well, in the Mideast as a whole. So uh, we're going to follow that. So in our daily newsletter, this is the kind of thing we talk about. Uh, we would love for you to become a part of that. We now have a special academic rate, 50% off. You must use your student or faculty email from the university, the institution that you're with in order to qualify for that, just $75 a year or $7 a month, $149 for a normal subscription. And this is really an invaluable resource for anybody following China, Africa, now increasingly the Middle East. These are the kinds of issues that we're talking about with people like Camille. So we do Q&As, we're doing news uh, assessments, news analysis. Cobus is writing quite a bit on this. It's a very, very unique newsletter. We hope that you'll join us. Uh, and if you'd like to, to sign up, you'll get two weeks for free just to try it out. Go to our page at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Uh, try it out for two weeks. You'll get it every day, and if at the end of two weeks you're not happy, just press the cancel button. You won't be charged. So hope that you'll take advantage of that offer, and we'd love to have you part of our growing community. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week for another show. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter where you can find Quobus at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs> <laughs>